Hello, I'm Ed Lattimore, a former professional heavyweight boxer and best-selling author of Sober Letters to My Drunken Self. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of looking danger in the eye, the connection between addiction and loneliness, and how Mike Tyson inadvertently got me back into the boxing ring. Stay tuned. Welcome back to part two of this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites with my special guest, Ed Lattimore. He is a pretty amazing guy. I'm going to tell you about him in a minute, in a moment, but this want you to know that this episode is brought to you by the Awesome Music Project, bringing music, story, mental health together. All proceeds from the Awesome Music Project campaign go to the uh, music and mental health research initiatives. You can find out more about the beautiful Awesome Music Project uh, coffee table book uh, in all your usual places, Amazon and bookstores, etc. The book stories, the book features rather stories from amazing people uh, like Michael Bublé and Sarah McLaughlin and even astronaut Chris Hatfield and even a bloke called Dove Barron in there. So all these great stories about how music has impacted lives and helped people with mental health. It's, it's a wonderful, beautiful book. And there's also a foundation. You can find out more about the Awesome Music Project and the AMP Foundation at www.theawesomemusicproject.com. All right, welcome back to part two with our our guest on this delicious episode, retired heavyweight boxer, philosopher, author, warrior poet, best-selling author, and coach, Ed Lattimore. All right, Ed, we spoke about boxing in part one, and we've talked about, you know, what you can, what you learned from that, what we can learn from that about discipline, about understanding uh, what fear is and looking fear in the eye and how fear is, is really just not being prepared enough. I love that you said that. It was really great. We talked about the Tyson connection, all those kinds of things. But now let's sort of, let's take a trip back down memory lane. Let's talk about where you came from um, because there is, you know, we talked about in the first part that people who go into boxing are generally not uh, private school individuals. You know, I find it very interesting to me because when I look at the best boxers, they are usually ghetto people. They were very famous boxers in the early days were Jewish. They were Jewish immigrants. Uh, then you got the Irish immigrants, right? And then and, and you got black people who were coming from from poverty. You know, they were always this sort of bottom rung economic people who were looking for another way out, right? And uh, certainly, there's a bigger emphasis now on things like basketball or football. But when we look at, I mean, of course, you know, boxing is a much older sport. Um, you know, and and uh, and of course, it was a private school thing in Britain and England back in the day. The lords would get together, you know, chaps, show what what we're made of. But that's different than than when it became this. It became an outlet. The way that rap or or, or basketball is now, it became a way to say, I can get out of this world. Mm -hmm. so, so talk to us about the world you came from initially. Let's so let's talk about what it was like where you grew up and, and, and what kind of kid you were. How did you huh. see yourself as a kid? Yeah, so, so first, uh, the environment, and this is really mm -hmm. important. 
So, so I'm from, I mean, I, I am, I am every freaking stereotype uh, there is about, you know, at-risk youth. I, my, my mom, okay, it's, it's probably not accurate. To, like, I knew my father, right? Like, and, and I, I'd spent some time with him and, and seen him, but, but he didn't live with me. I was raised by my mom. I don't ever remember, like, my dad disciplining me. We, we like, lived with him one summer, uh, and, and that was, like, it. So did you spend part of your time with your dad and part of the time with your mom? No, you no, no. We, I, I was like, I mean, you want to like break it down into a percentage over the years? Uh, 99%. You know, my dad actually, in fact, what my dad did, he lived in Philadelphia. I lived in Pittsburgh. For those who don't mm -hmm. know that, you know, that uh, six hour drive across the state of Pennsylvania. Right. My dad would, would come in and because he, he grew up in Pittsburgh. And he had so he had a bunch of friends, so he would he would time the the visits to see his friends as well. So a lot of times, like we I mean, like sometimes we like go with him, but for the most part, he'd, he'd come hang out and go do his thing. And and I spent you know most of my not my, my most of my life living with my mom. I was raised raised by uh, my mother. And just my mother, my dad was not a disciplinary uh, force. He was barely, he, he was a, a barely a financial one in terms of like child support, child support. I don't remember what the exact amount was. I vaguely remember seeing something to the tune of like $152 a month uh, or something like that. That that number's always stuck in my mind because I remember seeing that 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 uh, before, right? So, so, did, so you, you had, when did you, so your dad didn't live with you from day one. Yeah, I don't, I mean, no. You don't remember him living with you. <laughs> so when did you become aware? Do you know when you became aware of him as your dad? Um, I, I'm, I, okay, so I was always like, I, I knew I had a, a dad. That, yeah, that sure. never, like, was an issue. In fact, uh, but, but, but there must have been, uh, and I'll touch this, there must have been a period of time where he wasn't around because my Ooh. sister, uh, who's three years younger than me, I remember uh, there was this guy my mom was seeing who turned out to be this this just like crazy nutso dude really messed us up. Uh, she she would call him dad, and I remember thinking that's weird. You have a dad. She you know my sister's three years younger. We were like I was like five or six, and I remember thinking that was really weird. Uh, but but it made sense to her to do that. It didn't make sense to me because I was like aware of. Of my father so so we so we knew who he was but but for all intents and purposes i was i was raised by, by a single mom and in every way shape or form like like we lived in the projects man uh so it's not like there was, we were getting any assistance we were on food stamps and, and welfare on and off uh i remember my mom finally got a, like a full-time job when i was 14 i remember but, but that's how long it, it, it took <laughs> and so, so there's an interesting piece here ed um, and I was writing about this very recently, which is, you know, I talked about when my father left, I was seven. So I remember him leaving. Um, but, you know, I, I find it fascinating in my work is to ask men who taught you how to be a man. <laughs> right. So who taught you how to be a man? Oh, no one. This is one of the things I I struggle with um, 
until you know, I keep, it's weird to say into like my adulthood because now I'm, I'm full adult, but like, uh, yeah, I mean, I, oh, really, I was in my 30s before I had any sense of it. Any okay, great. So, so you, you get it. Yeah, because the person who taught me how to be a man was my mother. So it's not a teaching of how to be a man. It was teaching of how to not be the kind of man my father was. So my teaching was the opposite. Yep. Same for you? Oh, very much so. Right. Very, very Don't be like so. your father. Don't do this. Don't do that. And it was, it, was, it was a set of rules that were based on don'ts rather than do's. Yeah. It, it was spot on. And that does not prepare you i just i just wrote a guest piece for for um for someone's website that, I, that i'm i'm friends with on twitter and and it was about building yourself up as a as a man if you were raised by a single mom and one of the, the problems we face in that scenario is that society has very different expectations based on the gender and mm -hmm. And because of those expectations, uh, it, I, I don't want to say it's intentional, but women aren't aware of how different it is for men. And like, like we can sympathize with the, with, with the, the, the challenges because, because when you come from, as a person from a position of, of, of responsibility, you can, responsibility and expectation, you know, you can kind of look at, someone else and realize kind of what's lacking what isn't but it doesn't work the other way around like you can look at your kids and know they don't know better but the kid can't look at the parent and be like right you know you don't get mad when you when your kid doesn't uh when your kid doesn't doesn't listen if they don't understand why they should for example it, it, it's just a different kind of relationship and what i had to figure out a lot I had to figure out how to have friendships with guys, for example. It's a right. hard thing. Uh, and it seems obvious, right? Friends with guys, bond on activities, but you know, it, it's not clear. It's not no. clear that there's there's an honor system. You you learn, for example, unfortunately, I I, I lean kind of stoic, uh, but if I didn't. I had to figure out that, that using my emotions, you know, isn't always going to have the same results. Someone's going to go upside my head. I'm going to have to fight. Like, <laughs> it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to, I'm not just going to get a chance to pop off at the mouth when, when, when a thing is not to my liking. And these are just little things you got, you got to realize and learn. Um, but, but overall, um, my mom did the best she could, which is, uh, is bad the best she could, you know. Like I was the kind of kid, you know. It was it was overkill because because all because because when, when a person isn't the thing, they're they're trying to mimic it, and it, not as a guy. So she's mimicking that kind of confrontation that I need to develop and learn. Like I have a very vivid memory. Uh, it was getting teased by these kids, a lot of them. And I think I was like eleven or twelve. So my, my mm -hmm. mom did, in, in true hood mom fashion. She said, all right, we're gonna do a line and you're gonna fight these kids one-on-one. -on -one. So we, we stood up there at this playground and fought these kids in a row. And by like the 12th kid, I'm 12, wow, thank goodness, no. By like a third kid, they had lost the taste. Cause I mean, I was I was in there getting battered and bruised, but like- <laughs> yeah, But you weren't that, going down. 
yeah, well, but that's what we had to do, you know, those, those kinds of things. So she does the best she can, but but it's not it's not good enough. And you know, it's funny, you know, your your parents, all they see is the work they put in, a lot of times, and and it really bugs my mom a lot when I when I write about my childhood to the point where she left my email list. She was like, I, I don't, you know, I support everything you're doing, but I can't be there uh, because she she doesn't like the way I see it now as an adult. And I have experience and perspective to go, you know, some of this was really messed up, <laughs> you know, and but that's, you know, right there, you know, we're dancing on a razor's edge because <clears throat> there is this, excuse me, bullshit. And so, uh, and I'm not calling you bullshit, I'm saying, which is my parents did the best they could. And I agree with that on one side. Of course, they did the best they could. Everybody's doing the best they could. Adolf Hitler did the best he could. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's a, I think it's a terrible excuse. Um, the question is, did you want to do better? The question is, were you willing to do better? Were you willing to learn? Because the best I could do was stay in the ghetto I came from. The best you could do was stay in the ghetto you came from. But yeah. we didn't. We were willing to learn. And so, the, the, and I'm not crucifying my parents for that. I'm understanding that, that they, are they were living in the constraints and the restraints and the chains, the shackles of their environment and their social pressures to be the kinds of people they were. Um, as an example, I got married the first time when I was 16 years old. And people go, what, 16? And I go, yeah. <laughs> and people go, isn't that, that's so young. And I go, no, it was about two years too young. And they go, what are you talking about? I go, most of the people I knew got married at 18 years old. And they go, really? And I go, yeah. And they go, that, that's wild. And I go, no, that was my environment. It was right. simple. Yes, it was young, 16, but it was my environment. I took my mom to court and I won the case and got permission from the courts to marry my, my girlfriend. I really did it as an act of rebellion on one side <laughs> and on the other side of it um, was because I desperately wanted to be loved. That was a result of my childhood. So that willingness to do something else is also up against the the opposing force which is how do i fit in in this environment when i have no escape so right. my mom your mom likely did not see any escape and went okay i got to do whatever i got to do i and my siblings did not see an escape i said i'm out i made made that commitment when I was 10 years old and I saw Martin Luther King speak on TV and I saw that and it was like, something's different. And at 14 made the commitment in front of my mother, I'm out. Who thought I was crazy. And at 21, I got out, i left the country. But that was because there was some part of me could see beyond. And I think our parents do the best they can in the context of not seeing beyond. So when, Whatever your dad did, or whatever your mom did, was it just you and your sister? Just the two. Just me and my sister. Just, just right. So, <clears throat> let me ask you: simple question. What happened to your sister? Did she stay in that world, or did she? Ah, what happened to my sister? Now this is good, man. So, <laughs> my sister is very much not like me. 
right? I always tell my mom, you you get you you got an, an interesting draw of kids. You get one that you could have probably dumped me in a in a in a, in a um, favela or something in Brazil, and I'd have figured my way out. You got my sister, and she needed to be raised. She was mm-hmm. not. She didn't come. But and and so my mom's got confused because I come first. And then comes my sister and she's like, what is up? No, it's just, you know, and then my sister exposed a lot of the weaknesses and problems. But my sister now, right now, uh, has, has, she's got a, a problem with her temper and communication. She doesn't hear. And I used to think, I used to think she was just like being difficult. And then we had a, we had an incident uh, maybe two years ago I realized you really don't want to hear when you raise your voice out of frustration. Like, like you don't, you, you don't have that self-awareness. So you don't know how you come off to people. Also, like, you know, she, she got, she had a job where she kept having to switch trainers and finally I let her go and she couldn't understand it. And I'm like, you can't hear your voice. That's the issue. Like, like, like a basic thing. I think a lot of us learn and figure out. Now it is is I know when I sound annoyed. Mm-hmm. I know when people are responding to me uh, because of how I am, and that that's happening. I go, wow, she can't do it. She doesn't have the that 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 toughness. She she grew up reliant on her friends, so that that changed a lot of her choices and messed up. Like every time she tried to go back to school, she she would not study because she wanted to spend time around her friends or went to her friend's house thinking she could study and couldn't. And this continued into adulthood, followed her friends through school. You know, I went to a, one of the reasons why I turned out so differently, I think, is because I, I had that same realization. There's something beyond what I, what I see and I'm gonna get to it. And part of that was at 14, we have this like magnet program system here in the city uh, I grew up where you can go to a different school. There's the feeder where you're supposed to go based in your neighborhood. And I was like, yeah, I can't do that because I, I went with these people and I know there's no future. When I got turned 15, I went to a school across town, completely different demographic. I have no friends from pre or prior to age 14 like like yep. not really like like maybe someone like stumbled upon who, who happened to come sure. to the same program but all of my my great friends you know that i have post 14 because i went into a different world my sister is is not in that same realm and because it's just, just different we have there's, we had different such danger in the familiar yeah People oh don't sure. understand that because the brain is designed to recognize the familiar as fake and if you are to evolve, there is enormous danger in the familiar. And as we get older, we go looking for more and more different kinds of familiar. But we, uh, and, you know, so, yeah, your comfort zone may be bigger, but it's still a comfort zone. And that so <laughs> pushing outside of that realm constantly is, is difficult. But if you don't, you stagnate, you stall. And so... When I meet people, oftentimes they say, oh, you know, I've been friends with Bob for 25 years or, you know, since we were at high school. I'm like, mm, you know, and they go, what do you mean? I go, that concerns me. And they go, why? Tell me what you talk about. Oh, well, you know, we've been mates all these years and we, you know, we used to get drunk in high school. Or, I'm right. Like, There's the problem. You're not evolving. Like I want to have conversations with people 
who who can make me grow and who will expand me and make me look at things in a different way that have a completely different experience than me or had a similar experience with me but went down a different path and and I can learn and grow from that but if I'm always talking about what we did in high school or that we played football together who cares there's nothing in the I mean I don't want to say nothing in the past but this is one of the the big differences or our big changes that occurred. And, and I'm sure we'll end up digging even deeper into this, but I think about all the people that I have spent significant time around and who I've met in the past eight years. And, and the biggest difference between me and the other people I know, and I like, I saw it with like tremendous love. Yeah. It's not a judgment. Yeah. Right. But if you look at if you if you take a slice of my life compared to my life of 28 and overlap them, it's going to look completely different mm -hmm. compared to most of the people I know and came out with because the comfort zone, just like you said, expands slice slice is you couldn't tell the difference. And this is not good or bad. You know, it's the same. I got a friend who's an engineer making 80,000 and a friend who's making $10 an hour. It doesn't matter, but it's the same. There's no, if you look at, if you, if you plot it out mathematically, it's, it's a line. Mine is an, is a, is a curve and a curve happens when the, when the rate of change is increasing or, or decreasing, but, but a positive curve yeah. is, 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 is the point. A line is when it's just constant, just normal. Uh, and that's not what I think you should aim for. And I always tried to find find different ways to kind of break free and get out. And when I was younger, this confused and confused and frustrated my mom because here I was, uh, this kid. I don't. I like, for example, I don't remember spending maybe one holiday, one major holiday at home in high school. Most mm -hmm. of them, Thanksgiving, Christmas. I woke up at someone else's house, or I had dinner there. But but in fact, I did not spend an entire day at home ever for any of the major holidays because I, I I didn't want to be there. I wanted to see something different, right? Mm -hmm. It it I spent all of my time after school. I, if I wasn't playing a sport, I had a job because I needed to see something different. I, I could not that environment. It felt like it felt like a cell, and then this was my way out. Yeah. And and you just keep doing it. My, my mom couldn't understand the the, the girls I, I dated. You know, she was she was one of those old school. No, this was a, a big change uh, she made, and this is just goes to show you sometimes your children can change. You know, your parents. Yep. Uh, she didn't understand like how I would date white girls, and I was like, oh, I mean, it's just, it's just it's very different than what I know and have experienced, and <laughs> and. I seem to, you know, get along or have something there and then it works out well. Now, you know, she, she loves the, the, the current, you know, the, not current. I mean, ideally the, the one who will be here for, for, for a significant amount of time and is still here. But like, it, it was one of those things. It was, is my difference caused so much tension at the beginning because, because not only was it different from what I knew, but by definition of how I was living or rather implicit, you know, implicit in how I was living was I was better than what I came up around and what I grew up around. Mm. And, and there was no, and, and I couldn't see, I, like, the, like there was no way to, nice way to like, you know, cover that up. Like, oh, you know, this, we're all good. Like, no, I'm, I'm better than this and I'm not gonna be here. 
and I'm sorry. But, but that, you, you've said something there that's important, which is I'm better than this is different than I'm better than you. Right. I think that people make that mistake. I remember my stepmother saying to me years ago, you know, uh, like when I was a kid, like maybe 21 or something, 22. And she said, you know, you think you're better than us, right? You know, you've forgotten your roots. And I said, no, no. So here's the thing. We're all planted. And that you have a choice to allow those roots to go deep. Or you can use the ground you're planted on as a runway. Right. I don't think I'm better than you, but I think I'm better than my choices are here. Absolutely. That's, that's the key is that willingness to say, I'm capable of so much more and, and to constantly say that. But one of the things that I say, Ed, and this is part of my philosophy, and it helps me to stay grounded and compassionate, is everybody, I don't care who you are, whether you are the Dalai Lama or you're a complete <laughs> asshole, everybody is trying to feel better. Absolutely. About what? I don't know, because that's very unique. It's very individual. Everybody's trying to feel better about something. Um, and until we find a way to feel better um, uh, that is not destructive, we'll just keep trying to find new ways to feel better. But, you know, you have gone down the path of addiction in all kinds of ways. You've tried to feel better. Mm -hmm. um, do you now, looking back, because you've been sober for a, a, a really significant amount of time, do you recognize what you were running from? Because feeling better is, I want to get away from this. So I will have that to get away from this. Do you have a sense of what that sense of what that was within you? That oh, you were trying to get absolutely, away from? man. Um, my biggest issue, I've always had trouble feeling accepted. Mm -hmm. um, as far, you know, before the drinking, I, I always wondered if, if my friends really liked me, were they just tolerating me out of circumstance? I didn't have any friends prior to, I mean, I had like, like people knew me and I got along prior to switching high schools. And then I get to high school and I'm with all these people in a very different socioeconomic stratosphere. I mean, it was the first time I had been like a house with two parents, a house, right? I mean, like my, my friends, all this. And, and I'm like, man, what do, do these people like me or whatever? They just kind of deal with me and tolerate me. And then I get, I, I get to my, because I didn't drink until I was like 18. I, I didn't. I wasn't one of those kids sneaking off right. uh, or anything. And I well, then I, I discovered booze, and and the first thing I realized, I realized this in college when I drank, or well, the first time I tried to go to college, and and I realized this when the, when it got really bad in my late twenties or early twenties and everything, was um, it provides a great bonding activity. Like, like everyone, if, if you're a great drinker you're, and you want to party, people want to spend time with you. And so I got to not worry about being accepted because there was always a place with booze and you, you take my personality and some booze and people, and I don't have to worry about, I don't have to be in my head about how I'm going to come off to people and I can just be crazy. 
we're good. Let's go drink. Let's party every, you know, and whenever I could. The problem, and I, and this, this is when you start. Everyone has that moment. I think who struggles with any type of a, of a, at least with alcohol, uh, where they go, hmm, maybe, maybe I'm not in control here. I remember uh, when I when I moved to Los Angeles, and I didn't, I, and and the 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 nature of the move was I got recruited as part of my boxing. Yep. So I was like, you know, one moment I was trying to figure out how I was going to pay the rent. And then three days later, I was on a plane to LA and I didn't have to worry about this, right? But I moved and I didn't have a, a driver's license. My license was suspended. And I was in a part of LA called Carson. And there ain't nothing in Carson, right? <laughs> like, uh, and so I had nothing to do. Mm-hmm. And I realized, and I didn't really know anybody. And I realized something. I had built my entire personality and my entire set of interests around drinking Mm. and what did I do instead of going let me do something about this I said you know what make me feel better because I'm feeling kind of depressed I mean that moment was the I don't know if it was depression but it was yeah I was depressed I felt really depressed I think I would just go and drink all the time by myself to try and recreate the feelings of, of excitement that I, I used to get going to all these, you know, the frat parties I could find, the people drinking at the bars, whatever like that, right? And it didn't work. Mm. But unlike, here's the cool thing, right? This is a, this, this is my 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 attic story. This is <laughs> funny to me. In Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is one of two states where a state controls the liquor. So I always had to go to the state store. That's what my mom called it. I found out, it's, you know, we just call it wines and spirits here. I always had to go to the state store to get some liquor. I moved to California and I go to Target and get a bottle. And I was like, what is this magic? I can just walk across the street to Target, pick up groceries and be good for the night, right? But like, <laughs> that is that, that accessibility, man. I think about, I think about that a lot because that because that's when it was at its worst. I mean, it, I had some individual incidents prior to that made me question, but like, I mean, we're talking every day. I would woke up, go to practice, come back, drink, hang out on my computer all day because I'm trying to figure out things to do. I didn't know anybody. I didn't even know like 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 here. Here's a, a great contrast to story. Uh, two years ago, I was in Dallas, Fort Worth for for dinner. And I had something to do. I had to kill some time. And so I started looking up museums. I found a, a jazz restaurant where I could go listen to some music and, and a park to walk around in. My mind didn't even go to finding a bar. Mm-hmm. Compared that to when I went to LA uh, the years prior, my thought was like, man, I gotta find the bar. I gotta find out where I can go drinking and, and, and seeing karaoke because that was a thing I thought I really liked doing because it gave me an opportunity to to drink and under the guise of doing something but I had big problems feeling by myself and I was Mm -hmm. trying to escape that and what I find and this is why like when you talk to people uh in AA they they talk about the big challenge the big change is how they're going to relate to the world, socialize. They think they're gonna, what are, like, like, what do they say? What are you gonna do now that you don't drink? And I'm like, 
I get that question. Like, like I, I understand it because as I st- the, the longer I'm sober, because uh, everyone goes to this loop, it's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. Okay, we, we, hit a, we hit a high note and then you jump up here and then you're here. And then there's like, you, you don't understand people who can't stop drinking. That's a weird way to think about it since you had the same issue but you're like man i I put in three four years you can't put in you know 30 40 days referencing some posts i see in dry january but what happened around year four i went to when i was like when i was in danger of really developing this thinking i somebody messaged me on twitter and they were like hey man i'm gonna be your area I know you're sober. I don't know if you've got your chip yet. I'd love to see you get your chip. And you get your chips when you go to AA and, you know, yep. celebrate your time. And so that was my first time going to a meeting. I went to a meeting and I heard everyone talk about So you'd been sober four years before you went to a meeting? I went to a meeting. Um, I went to like two meetings when I first got sober. And then you're going to hear this part of arrogance sometimes, all right? I'm listening to people talk and I go, man, I am not like these people, right? I mean, that was my thought. I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure this out, but I'm not That's like not a trap, a lot. Okay. <laughs> well, I finally went back and I was listening and I was like, I am exactly like these people. Mm-hmm. The only difference, if there's a difference at all, is when the coin came down, it landed on heads and that's the, the side I bet on and for them it was tails. And what I mean by that, uh, I'm, I'm a very, I think I'm a very affable guy. I think, I think I understand how to talk to people. I think I understand how to read humans and interact with them very well. And one thing you learn when you, when you're like this is that everyone's the same. It doesn't matter what they do. I've been pulled over four times or at least four times where they were well within their rights. They, they should have took my ass to jail. And, and not just sort of once was with a suspended license. Once I actually took the field sobriety test and they were like, you're kind of over the limit, just hurry up and get home, right? You know, th- these, are the, these are the things that I've had experience with. If the coin lands differently, I'm looking at, you know, five, 10 years probably. Sure. I'm like somebody, I remember hearing somebody's story where they were talking about how they had to come to AA as part of their release uh, program and another woman was talking about she had to, you know, sign off on these AA meetings to eventually get her kids back. And I'm like, that was, those were the stories I heard that made me think I wasn't like those people. I went back four years later with a, with a renewed perspective. And I was like, I'm, I'm exactly like you. The difference is I got lucky. That's all it is. I got lucky and I took advantage of the luck when I, you know, I always say you can only outrun the law of large numbers for so long. Eventually, you're gonna if you keep doing the same dumb shit. Eventually, you're gonna get caught. You're gonna be unlucky. So seeing that uh, and hearing hearing those experiences when I went back that 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 time in four years, same issues, man. A lot of people worried about about how they're gonna relate to the world because we make. Well, the- you know, it's what we talked about earlier. Is we human beings are tribal we're relational, we have to be relational. And if you don't feel accepted, um, you go do something to feel accepted. And, if, and which gives you a tribe gives you a community. And if the and then now I've got to give up my tribe and my community of, of booze hounds, or of <laughs> drug addicts or of or of whatever it might be. Um, you know, maybe it's church people, because everything's an addiction. And when you start looking at that, that you're always trying to feel better, then you start realizing, okay, like what, you know, it was one of 
questions I ask myself and others is what is the precious lie? What is the lie you keep telling yourself that keeps you stuck that makes you feel good? And that's a very big question for anybody to consider at the end of this part of part two of our conversation with Ed Lattimore, who is a, uh, was a heavyweight boxer who is a writer, who is a warrior, poet, and all kinds of great stuff. We're going to dive deeper as we come back into part three, and we're going to talk about forgiveness, and we're going to talk about his uh, move into the a different world and, and what that world became and how it's begun to form him and, and the difference that he's making in the world. So I want to thank you for joining us for part two of this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. We're going to be back with part three with Ed Lattimore. And till then, stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. <laughs>